Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Later in the podcast, Tom Hennigan will be on the line from Sao Paulo to tell us about the reaction in Brazil to the victory of the far-right candidate, Jair Bolsonaro, in Sunday's presidential election. But first this week, it's to a different set of elections. We're just one week away now from the US midterm elections, which could change the face of the political landscape in America for the final two years of Donald Trump's first term in the White House. Will there be a second term? We don't know yet, but next week's elections could have a significant bearing on the answer to that question. Suzanne Lynch, our Washington correspondent, joins me now from there. Suzanne, can can you give us a picture first of the scale of the elections taking place across the US next Tuesday? There are congressional elections, governorship elections and a lot more besides. Yes, so uh, there's a lot on the ballot next Tuesday for voters across the country here. Uh, Most significantly, uh, the two Houses of Congress uh, are going to be on the ballot. That's the House of Representatives and the Senate. The House of Representatives has 435 seats. All of those seats are up for grabs, as they are every two years. On the Senate side, that's a 100-member seat. Only a third of those seats, or roughly a a third, are up for election every two years, Uh, which means basically that senators, when they are elected, are elected for six years. Uh, One of of the reasons that the Senate is seen as a more prestigious house, if you like, um, for politicians. So 35 Senate seats uh, are up for election on Tuesday. In addition, there are about 36 governor races around the country and then various state legislature positions. Uh, Two houses and most state legislatures, they're up um, for grabs. And a number of states have local ballot initiatives on the ballot next Tuesday, as well as a a couple of mayoral candidates as well, contests around the country. But the main focus will be on on the two houses of Congress. And, and before, Suzanne, we look at some of the more the really interesting individual contests, how, how would you characterise the scale of the challenge faced by the Democrats in terms of those congressional elections you mm. mentioned, um, seeking to regain control of the House of Representatives and the Senate? Is, is, are those goals within reach? Yeah, I think we need to remember that traditionally the party that is not in power does well in midterm elections. So the expectation from a very base level was that the Democrats would do well in these elections. Um, they are slightly unfortunate because the mathematics of the Senate race doesn't really suit them. A lot of the states that are up in the Senate uh, race, some of, uh, 10 of those seats um, are being held by Democrats who are trying to hold on their seats, onto their seats in states that Donald Trump won in 2016. So there's obviously a strong Republican vote in those 10 states. So the Democratic senators that are there are under pressure to retain those seats. So the maths are not working in in the Democrats' favour. On the House side, the 435 seats, they need 24 net net gain, essentially, of 24 seats to flip that House. That is looking within reach. Um, A couple of factors here, uh, one being there are a number of Republican uh, members of Congress of the House retiring. Some see that as a result of Donald Trump's politics. A lot of them uh, indicated early on in the election cycle, cycle that they would not be contesting their seats. So, so that, that gives an opportunity for Democrats to pick up seats there. Uh, also, for example, Pennsylvania, an important state with, with uh, 18 uh, seats in the House of Representatives. There has been a recent redistricting Supreme Court ruling and the districts in Pennsylvania have been redrawn. And these, this really benefits the the uh, Pennsylvanian Democrats. They're hoping to pick up maybe six seats in that state alone, and that would be a quarter of the of the 24 they needed. So the picture is positive on the House side. On the Senate side, less so. Uh, Republicans only have a tiny majority in the Senate, 51 to 49. Um, 
But as I say, the, the worry for Democrats are these states that are, went Republican in 2016 that have a Democratic senator. Will they be able to convince this kind of Republican heavy states to, to vote for the Democratic senator this time around? And the case in point there is a state you reported on at the weekend was Missouri, where the, the Democratic incumbent, Claire McCaskill, is under, is under severe pressure from a Republican opponent. Tell us something about yes. that one. So that was in, that's an interesting state, Missouri, in the middle of the country, predominantly rural state, um, but it's kind of anchored by two cities, St. Louis in the, in the east of the country, um, of the state, excuse me, and Kansas City to the west. Um, but this state voted for Donald Trump in 2016. Uh, but Claire McCaskill is a Democratic senator. Now, a lot of people would say that she was lucky six years ago to win her seat. Um, she uh, happened to go against a Republican who made a serious error of judgment ahead of the election and comments he made about uh, rape and pregnancy. And uh, she then won that uh, election. This time, people think she is under pressure uh, to retain her seat. Um, Josh Hawley is the Republican candidate. He's a young, a photogenic 38-year-old. He was elected attorney general of the state two years ago. Um, and he has been running on a very pro-Trump campaign. Uh, he has aligned himself specifically with Donald Trump. He has put pictures of Donald Trump on his election uh, literature. And um, again, before the uh, midterms in the next few days, Donald Trump expects to visit Missouri for a further rally in the days ahead of uh, next Tuesday's vote. And uh, so Republicans are very confident that they can pick up the Senate seat uh, on, on, the, on Tuesday. Now, I was speaking to voters there, very mixed picture. It, again, it really reflects the, the, the defining characteristic, I think, of US politics now, which is the urban-rural divide. The idea that broad swathes of state may vote Republican, and then there are these, these blue corners of Democratic support around the cities and urban areas, and that's exactly what happens uh, in Missouri. Is that a strategy, Suzanne Hawley's strategy, Josh Hawley, of closely aligning himself to Trump? Is that a strategy that's working for Republican candidates across the country? Um, or in some cases, do they seek to distance themselves from Trump? Yeah, it's, it's one of the, the interesting trends to watch in this election. And I think Republicans in Congress are going to be watching. What Donald Trump has essentially taken over the Republican Party in so many ways. He is defining modern day republicanism. And I think the question for con members of Congress and, and politicians at the state level is how far do you, do you align yourself with him? Now, in certain states that are maybe more moderate, where the Republicans, you know, there are maybe only two or three senior Republicans in office, um, you will see Republicans in those states moving away from Trump and not um, identifying with him. For example, in Nevada, um, which actually voted for Clinton, you'll see the Republicans there are, are not eager to up their credentials on Trump. But in Missouri, Josh Hawley obviously believes that this is going to work with supporters. He believes that the Donald Trump was the reason why this state voted so heavily for Republicans in 2016. But of course, the question will be, uh, I think it's one of the more interesting, again, thematic aspects of this. Was the 2016 vote, was it a pro-Trump vote or was it an anti-Hillary Clinton vote? And um, I think we're going to get answers to that, those questions next Tuesday um, about how far uh, Trump can bring supporters when, you know, there's maybe a strong Democratic candidate running in certain states. The Senate race that has perhaps got the most attention is, is in Texas, where Pedro O'Rourke, seen as a rising star in the Democratic Party, is attempting to unseat Ted Cruz, one of the most high profile Republican senators in the country. What's the latest on that race? Yeah, the uh, 
this race gained national attention uh, early in September, really, because there were leaked reports that the Republican Party were becoming seriously concerned about their prospects in Texas. Um, they decided to put a lot of effort, a lot of fundraising and a lot of uh, national support into the Texas race. Um, but since then, Ted Cruz, the incumbent, has pretty much maintained a lead over Beto O'Rourke. Beto O'Rourke uh, is, was a little-known congressman, really, from Texas, from El Paso, here in Washington, representing Texas, um, and has really energized Democrats in that state and, indeed, around the country. Most significant is the fundraising. He has raised millions, has out, outraised Ted Cruz by many multiples. Uh, so he has been a huge focus for Democratic uh, engagement around the country. But one of the problems is that a lot of the money he is gaining is from outside the state. So it's very unclear if this extra money, which, which pays a huge role in American elections, whether they, that will actually translate into votes for Beto O'Rourke in his home state of Texas. So the latest polls are showing uh, that Ted Cruz has a, has a strong enough lead uh, over Beto O'Rourke, 51 to 45. And he's basically, you know, it's maybe not as competitive maybe as Democrats have hoped. In saying that, there has been suggestions in the last few days that the Hispanic vote may be really on the rise uh, for this election in Texas. That would uh, that would probably translate into more votes for Beto O'Rourke. Uh, so anything could happen there. Uh, it, it's all to do with turnout in a lot of, as in with a lot of states. And in particularly in Texas, it's such an interesting state because of the changing demographics. It was a Republican stronghold for so long, but the changing profile of the population there, particularly the huge increase in Hispanic, uh, young Hispanics are now getting to the voting age, means that Democrats really believe that, that Texas will eventually, maybe in five years, maybe in 10 years, but it will eventually become a democratic state. And this will be the first indication of whether that's a reality uh, in the next couple of years. And you mentioned the polls today, Suzanne, and, and Beto O'Rourke actually has been commenting on the, on the polls and their significance, so we, we can hear from him here. I don't think these polls are on the minds of our supporters or of most Texans. We're seeing early voter turnout that not just surpasses 2014, but in many counties rivals 2016, a, a presidential year. This from a state that had been ranked 50th, dead last in voter turnout. So I think that, that folks are defying the party labels, the polls, um, the PACs, the, the outside groups, and they're just getting after it and deciding the future of this state and of this country. There's also a very close race in Arizona, Suzanne, and there's also a new opinion poll out there. Who are the candidates there and why is this one so interesting? Yes, this is a state which Democrats are very confident that they could pick up. Um, there are two women in the fight for the Senate seat, um, the Democrat, Democratic candidate Kirsten Sinema and Republican Martha McSally. They're pretty much neck and neck in the polls. Again, Arizona, it's a border state. Um, immigration is a big issue and, and people come down on both sides of the divide there. A lot of Democrats feel huge sympathy for a lot of the illegal immigrants living in their state. But uh, Trump's rhetoric about uh, building a wall goes down very well Republicans in that state, um, particularly those in the southern parts of the state near Tucson, near the border with Mexico. Um, in saying that, Arizona has become, a bit like Texas, increasingly progressive in recent years. Phoenix, the capital, has seen a huge influx of people from around the country, maybe retired people from New York, uh, younger workers coming uh, east from California to build a kind of a, a similar but cheaper life in Phoenix. Um, and they have the, a history of appointing uh, more moderate Republicans. John McCain, obviously, was a senator for this state. 
So um, it's going to be very closely watched. At the moment, the Democratic candidate does appear to be slightly ahead. There, she has been the subject of huge and uh, negative campaigning by the Republican side, who basically are arguing she's too liberal for uh, the state. So you see both her and Martha McSally, the Republican, trying to kind of move to the centre ground to try and win over the other side. Um, you know, Kristen Cinema is, is saying, mentioning how she would vote for certain Republican men measures that, you know, she can be bipartisan, she can work with Republicans across the aisle. Um, and Martha McSally, she's an interesting candidate because during the primary contest for this Republican seat, one of her contenders, for example, was Joe Arpaio, the, the very hard right sheriff um, who took a strong stance on immigration. McSally campaigned on a very right wing stance during that primary in order to win the primary contest. So she aligned herself with Trump. She was very harsh on immigration issues. And that did deliver the primary contest to her. But now, after moving so far to the right, she's trying to track back left in order to win the more general vote in the state. That's going to be her challenge now. So I think uh, Democrats are extremely confident, probably rightly so, that this could be a state where they pick up a seat. Interesting, as you mentioned there, Suzanne, both of those candidates are women. To what extent is there a women's vote in this election and particularly, I suppose, considering um, what Trump's, Donald Trump's opponents have had to say about his misogynistic comments and so on over the years? Mm -hmm. Anecdotally, uh, Chris, just in my experience of travelling around the country um, over the last few weeks, I, like everybody, I don't want to make predictions, but I do think that the women vote is going to be huge in this election. Um, I've spoken to women around the country and they, in their quiet way, I think, a lot of women um, really do not like Donald Trump. For example, in Texas, I was in Texas a few weeks ago and I spoke to a woman um, who owned a shop. She was obviously Republican, maybe early 60s. She was talking about her young grandchildren. And she said to me quietly that she was going to vote for Beto O'Rourke, that she, she doesn't like Donald Trump. She'd voted Republican basically all her life, um, but she's not going to vote for Trump because she doesn't like his rhetoric and the way his language, etc. Um, so I think there are a lot of, you know, the silent majority a lot of people talked about during the Trump uh, presidential campaign in 2016. I think you might be seeing that on the women's vote, that people like her are not going to tell their friends or their husbands that they're not going to vote Republican. But I think some of those women will not vote Republican. I sense in other states too, I just think that will, that could um, play a role in this. And I think Republicans are aware of this. Um, they've been trying to move Donald Trump away from anything contentious around uh, women. Uh, for example, Stormy Daniels, he, he tweeted a, a very negative tweet about her appearance a few weeks ago. And, and you could almost hear Republicans in Capitol, Capitol Hill cringing and saying, we need to get him away from this narrative. Um, research shows on the Republican side that one thing that a lot of women Republican voters do care about is immigration. So that is why uh, we're seeing the Republicans, Donald Trump, really trying to change the narrative back towards the immigration issue um, and away from anything contentious on sexuality, on women's rights, etc. Uh, by Donald Trump. We might look, look Susanna, just one more uh, race. There are several more we could go through, but one that's among the most closely watched in the country is in West Virginia, and you've just been there, and this is the mm. the, the, the Senate race there as well. You report on that. Mm. As it will be on on IrishTimes.com shortly. Give us a sneak preview of, of what you found there. Yeah, West Virginia, interesting state. It's one of the Appalachian states, the, these rural parts of, of white working class America that voted overwhelmingly for Trump in 2016. And of course, one of the states that have changed from being Democrat to Republican. I mean, in my piece uh, that I've just written, 
I, I talk about, this is the state that Bobby Kennedy visited 50 years ago and uh, where he tried to engage, well, nearby in Kentucky, in northern parts of Kentucky, this region, he tried to engage rural, white, working-class people. And yet, 50 years later, it went for Trump. So, um, the Senate race... In fact, in just Virginia, to give an... Uh, sorry, mm, just to cut in on, on the extent of the swing, yeah. I think you quote in the piece, the margin Bill Clinton won West Virginia by, and then you, you, you move on up to Sir Donald Trump. And the swing is absolutely, absolutely spectacular, absolutely isn't it? Absolutely huge. I think it's 13 points... Um, that Bill Clinton yes. won that state in 1992 as a Democrat. And last year, or in 2016, uh, Donald Trump won it by 42, 42 percentage points. So one of his biggest margins of victory in the country. Um, so, I mean, Democrats, it's a, it's a bigger issue here, but Democrats have a major problem in trying to regain this white working class vote. Um, so, and I spoke to people about this. I spoke to one man who said, you know, his family had been there since the late 1700s. And he said, I was vote, I was a Democrat all my life and I voted Republican. It, it's a huge problem for the Democratic Party. In saying that, um, again, the Democratic Senator, Joe Manchin, who has been there for six years and now is facing re-election. Um, and, and just, just to indicate the, the strength of Republican feeling in that state, the current governor of West Virginia actually changed. He was elected as a Democrat and changed his party affiliation to Republican. Um, but Joe Manchin is 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 the Democrat that's trying to hold on to a seat. But he may be in a better position than Claire McCaskill in, in Missouri. He's popular. He's kind of got this down to earth, homely, I'm working for you kind of politics. Uh, crucially, he was the only Democrat to vote for Brett Kavanaugh's nomination during that very contentious Supreme Court nomination process earlier this month. He obviously did that with an eye to his constituents. He knew what way the wind was blowing in terms of his what his constituents thought about that battle. They obviously were, were highly behind Brett Kavanaugh. So he seems to be in relatively good shape. His um, opponent, Patrick Morrissey, um, is, is well known, but he's getting a lot of criticism for his role as a lobbyist. He formerly worked as a lobbyist representing pharmaceutical companies. His wife is also involved in that kind of business. And he's getting really, really criticised for this on the Democratic side because West Virginia is one of the worst states uh, to be hit by the opioid crisis. So this is resonating. People I spoke to in West Virginia quoted that to me, said, well, we do have a problem with Patrick Morrissey. So they may be willing just to give Joe Manchin as the kind of old style Democrat um, the benefit of the doubt. But uh, Republicans are confident they can pick up the state. Significantly, Donald Trump is going to campaign there on Friday night. So that's an indication that they really think um, they could win this seat. But it's definitely a vulnerable one for uh, for Democrats. And I think, as I say, there's a broader soul-searching question here about how they're going to try and connect with these white white working-class voters going forward. To wrap that part of the discussion, Suzanne, I think all of that gives, gives a picture of, when you go back to where we started there, this, the Republicans have a very small majority in the Senate, 51, 49. On the face of it, you would think if the Democrats could flip a couple of seats, they'll win control of the Senate. But I think you've just kind of shown there how much pressure the Democrats are under to hold their own seats, in own yes. Senate seats in this election, isn't that right? And it, it could end up equal, Chris. It could end up that they lose one and gain one, you know, gain Arizona but lose Missouri. And we could have the same mathematics in the Senate next time around. But we, we'll find out next week. And just briefly, Suzanne, what are the main issues you've encountered? You've travelled a lot covering this election. I mean, is it essentially um, a, a, a referendum of sorts on Donald Trump or, or is it about bread and butter issues? I think, being honest, it is a referendum on Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump is captivating the world, but he's also 
you know, dominating American life and American conversation. And he is such a divisive figure that I think people on both sides are motivated to go out and vote for him or against him. And um, it, it's up the engagement on both sides. So I think it is a, um, it is a question of how, how strongly do you feel about Donald Trump? One of the one of the many issues for Democrats in the last election, obviously, was, was complacency. Um, you know, I spoke to Democrats earlier this year. I was in Nevada, which is another tight race. And I spoke to a, Demo- a woman who's running for the Democrats, the local state seat. And she actually admitted to me that she didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. She didn't bother voting in the election because she didn't like Hillary Clinton. She preferred Bernie Sanders. So those kind of people, I think, are not going to let that mistake happen again. I think they will go out and vote. Um and, and that is being propelled by basically the an, antipathy towards Donald Trump by so many people in this country. So there are bread and butter issues in Missouri, for example. I, I attended a, a debate between McCaskill and Josh Hawley, her challenger, and there was a lot about Medicaid. Um, gun crime came up slightly um, and taxes the economy. They came up. But I think ultimately, more than any other time in recent history, it's going to be about the person in the White House, even though he's not on the ballot. Um, and I think... And that is motivating both sides. Of course, the big question will be who's more motivated, who gets out the vote, because it's all going to be about turnout. And just a final question, Suzanne. It might seem like a strange one, but I'll explain it. I was going to ask you if you think a Democratic victory next week would help or hinder Trump's chances of being re-elected as president in two years' time. And the, the reason I ask that is, on the face of it, obviously, if the Democrats regain control of one or both houses, it makes it more difficult for him to govern. But I've seen an argument, but that will also make it easier for him to campaign and campaign, if you like, against the Democrats for the next two years. He can say even more than he does now, they're frustrating everything I'm trying to do. So it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, and you're right in that Donald Trump, in one of his many untruths, often says, you know, I'm trying to get things through, but Congress, when in fact Republicans are in control of Congress, you know, the border wall, for example. Um, so you're right, he will have a scapegoat if they get into control, in, in particularly in the House of Representatives. Um, and he, he, this is a man who likes blaming other people a lot um, and, and it doesn't tend to take responsibilities. Um, and we will he, he will be able to use them as a whipping boy, if you like, to try and get out his vote in 2020. So that that is an argument. But I think what will be interesting to see is and to watch is if Republicans do very bad in this election, you may start to see some Republicans... In, on Capitol Hill and the ones that are left, uh, maybe starting to break with Donald Trump a bit more. I mean, cast your mind back to 18 months ago, there was a huge battle within the Republican Party about Donald Trump and what he represented with some senators like Jeff Flake, etc., standing up to Trump. You know, that opposition has kind of dwindled um, and they've rode in behind Donald Trump. But they're waiting to see which way the wind blows next Tuesday. And I think if they feel he's a negative for the party, we could see a lot more Republicans standing up to Trump, taking him on and holding him to account. And that could be problematic for him then in the presidential election in 2020. Okay. Well, Susanna, fascinating week and indeed two years ahead of us. Um, Thanks for that. That was Suzanne Lynch, our Washington correspondent. And now to Brazil, where on Sunday, as expected, the far-right candidate Jair Bolsonaro emerged as a clear winner in the country's presidential election with more than 55% of the vote. In his acceptance speech, he pledged to respect democratic principles, but said he wanted to change Brazil's direction. We cannot continue flirting with socialism, communism, populism and leftist extremism. We are going to change the destiny of Brazil, he said. For more on this story, Tom Hennigan joins me now from Sao Paulo. Tom, to quote from your own piece in today's Irish Times, 
Jerry Bolsonaro is a man possessed of a violent temperament who proudly holds prejudiced views on women, blacks, gays and refugees. Why then did the Brazilian electorate hand him such a resounding victory on Sunday? Um, I think principally to prevent the Workers' Party returning to power. Um, this was a very polarised election and when the Workers' Party was um, ejected from office in 2016 with the conclusion of the impeachment to Dilma Rousseff, it left um, the country mired in its worst ever recession. Uh, the party's leadership, including um, its supreme leader, uh, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, were being processed for corruption. And um, I think a majority of Brazilians just didn't want the Workers' Party coming back to power, particularly because after it was ejected from office, the party started spinning a narrative that it was the victim of a huge conspiracy um, that it had done nothing wrong and that um, everything that had befallen the country was the responsibility of its opponents. And uh, its failure to do uh, carry out any sort of self-criticism, I think for most Brazilians, was just um, too much. And it was a case really of the devil you don't know um, who was Bolsonaro because he has never run anything really in his life rather than the um, the, the party that you do know who, when they left office, left the country in a huge um, economic hole and up to its neck in corruption scandals. I, I mentioned his acceptance speech there. Um, I think in that speech he also promised to govern Brazil according to the Bible and the country's constitution. I'm not sure if you made it clear in which order, but did, did we learn anything from that speech? I mean, did it offer any reassurance that he might not be the threat to democracy that many people fear? Um, you know, I think it's one of those cases where after a, a bitterly divided election, everyone wants... Um, to believe that uh, that the, the tension is going to ease, that uh, hardline positions will soften, people will move towards the centre. Um, and Bolsonaro, um, his campaign in the last week really struggled um, with the revelation that his son had bragged that it would take only um, a corporal and a single soldier to shut down the Supreme Court. So he was aware that there were people, even amongst his own voters, who were a bit nervous um, about him. But I really think that his career, the people he has surrounded himself with for his presidential campaign and what they said during the presidential campaign um, means that a, a brief promise to respect the Constitution is not going to um, uh, assuage many people who believe he is a threat to democracy. What kind of reaction has there been to his win? I mean, obviously his supporters are, are pleased and he won majority support, but I presume there's a lot of, so, of soul-searching going on in Brazil today, is there? Well, the, the left has already uh, started trying to mobilise um, some kind of opposition to um, his, his incoming administration. That risks repeating the mistakes that the Workers' Party made when Rousseff was removed from office, um, which was to believe that, uh, that that they somehow represented the majority view in the country, um, when that is now clearly not the case. Um, and there are others on the left saying that really uh, it needs now to conduct um, analysis of what has happened and maybe um, start um, accepting some responsibility for its own past errors. Whether they will do that or not remains to be seen. Um, amongst his own supporters, obviously, there's um, a certain amount of euphoria and amongst uh, the establishment, you can see how it is now being rearranged around the reality that uh, Bolsonaro is going to be from January the 1st, the president. Um, but amongst um, amongst the people who were out celebrating on Sunday night, I thought it was quite telling 
that it wasn't so much um, uh, what I would say, any sort of exuberance at the fact that Bolsonaro was going to come in to power and have the chance to execute his program. It was more just glee that the Workers' Party had failed in its bid to return to power. So um, there was still, I think, a, a, a polarized society out there. And it remains to be seen if um, that will, will diminish anytime soon. And do you think, Tom, I mean, unless we're to believe that Brazil has suddenly taken a, a big kind of lurch to the right, I mean, are many of his supporters counting on the on the idea that, that power will somehow temper him and, and, and curb his, his excesses? There, there are. You know, every time you, you talk to people about Bolsonaro, you hear, well, you know, he's surrounded by former high-ranking generals in the military and Brazil's military um, to get to the top of it, you have to display a certain level of competence. Um, and so they're saying, you know, that they will act as um, a kind of a, a mature hand on the tiller. Uh, he has a very um, respected, if somewhat volatile, uh, Chicago trained economist who is going to be his finance minister. And he reassures um, the market. Um, but a lot of uh, a lot of Bolsonaro's support does come from, um, I think, a kind of a visceral rejection of uh, progressive and particularly identity politics in Brazil. Uh, he got a huge vote amongst evangelical voters, particularly the neo-Pentecostal voters, many of whom seem to have voted on the belief that Fernando Haddad, when he was uh, the, the Workers' Party candidate, when he was Minister for Education, had authorised a gay kit for teachers in schools to talk about um, uh, homosexuality amongst young children. Now, that just wasn't true. But uh, they that, that sort of segment of the support will be looking for him to deliver on some of his more hard right identity politics proposals made during the campaign. And that therefore risks um, continuing the polarization uh, current present in society. You mentioned the markets there and the markets did, you know, surge, you know, during his campaign. Um, and certainly his economic policies seem to have won support from from some economists on the right, at least. What's the thinking there? I mean, um, is there a, a, a hope or an expectation that he might actually address some of Brazil's really deep rooted economic problems? There is. Uh, the market's uh, um, initial candidate was definitely Geraldo Alckmin, a centrist, um, a centre-right uh, member of the Social Democrat Party. Once it realised that the market, that is, realised that Alckmin's campaign was not um, going to take off, they started accommodating themselves with Bolsonaro. Um, and that was because they they were determined that the, the Workers' Party not return to power. And the Workers' Party, which in, in its 13 years in government, for most of that, had good relations with the market. They made an error in that trying to mobilize their base behind Fernando Haddad. They stuck in a lot of left populist economic policies that the market looked at and said, that's a, that's a rehash of the policy mix that um, Rousseff used to drive the economy in, over a cliff. So that's why the market um, turned towards Bolsonaro. But he seems to be aware that um, that there is a looming fiscal crisis in Brazil and has so far indicated that he will give authority to um, uh, Paulo Guedes, his incoming finance minister, to make some drastic changes, structural reforms, particularly to the pension um, system, to try and uh, stave off that uh, fiscal crisis. 
if he fails to deliver on that, the market will turn against him very quickly. And I think he's aware of that. So um, it's not that the market loves uh, Jair Bolsonaro at all. It's more that he was, first of all, their only way of stopping the, the Workers' Party returning to power. And they will back him so long as he um, carries out some of these structural uh, reforms that are necessary. And if he doesn't, it will turn on him quickly. And, and so finally, Tom, when does the Bolsonaro era officially begin? I think you mentioned an, an inauguration date there. Uh, he is sworn in on January the 1st um, and will um, normally uh, what happens is a few days work, then a holiday because it's the height of the summer holidays here. But because of his stabbing at a campaign rally, um, which um, almost killed him, um, he still has various medical issues and he is scheduled for um, to go back for more surgery shortly after he is sworn in. But he should be out of hospital by the time the Congress opens at the beginning of February when um, the the major structural reforms that we believe he's going to attempt will be tabled and will um, really start see the start of his administration from that date. OK, well, Tom, thanks again for all your coverage of the, the, the campaign. I know you're off on, on holidays now. Well, Aaron, so enjoy those and we'll talk to you when you get back. Thanks very much, Chris. Talk to you then. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.